While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Through 25 seasons, 4,561 episodes, I believe The Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. She broke the law and was caught in the middle of an international standoff between the United States and one of the most dangerous countries in the world. Reporter Laura Ling has never told the details of her frightening five-month ordeal as a prisoner in North Korea. She is here with her sister, our Oprah Show correspondent, Lisa Ling. Lisa helped orchestrate top secret negotiations at the highest levels to help free Laura. This is their first interview together. They have written a book called Somewhere Inside. Here's how this whole saga unfolded. Just walking through this neighborhood. Laura Ling's job as a reporter for Al Gore's network, Current TV, took her to the most dangerous hotspots in the world. Last year, she and producer Yuna Lee were reporting from the border of North Korea and southern China when they were captured, sparking an international incident between the United States and North Korea. Laura and Yuna were reporting on the thousands of North Koreans who cross this river every year, trying to escape the communist regime. To get a better video shot for their story, Laura and Yuna set foot in North Korea, knowing it was against the law. As they crossed back over into China, North Korean border guards violently assaulted and captured the two journalists. Wow. So, Laura, in the book you say that we were there for only a minute. So can you describe for us what you were doing and why you were doing it? Yeah. Well, we had never intended to cross the river into North Korea. We went to the river to document the area where so many North Koreans are crossing to escape these desperate conditions in their homeland. Right. And we wanted to get images there. And when you go to foreign countries, oftentimes foreign journalists will hire fixers or local guides. Right. And we did that. We hired somebody who had worked with the media in the past. He knew the area well. He was very cautious up until that moment. And while we were on the river filming, he continued to walk across the ice. Mm -hmm. And our guide continued to walk closer and closer to That's North Korea. Looking at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and we followed him. Mm -hmm. 
and he motioned for us to follow. The guide did. The guide did. Okay. Joe, if you will, put up the map so we can see where uh, Laura and Una were, were captured, the area there. So we're looking at that. That's the river that you all had crossed. Correct. And on one side is China, and on the other side is North Korea. That's right. All right. Is there like a spot where you know in this, but there's this line or there's some division there, that you know that if you put your foot over that, now you're in North Korea? There was not. There are no signs saying no trespassing. There's no barbed wire. There's no fence. There were no guards in sight. But of course, we did know that as you're crossing the river, you're getting closer and closer to the other side. Mm -hmm. We stepped foot in North Korea. And after less than a minute, we said, we need to leave. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we walked back across the ice, and about halfway across the ice, we heard yelling coming from down the river. Mm -hmm. I turned around and saw two North Korean soldiers with rifles running towards us. They're running? On the ice. On the ice. So we run back to China. Mm -hmm. And... To the other side. Yes back across the river to China to the other side. Wasn't there a moment, though, where your foot got caught in the ice and Yuna stopped to help you? It was, it was on the soil. Mm -hmm. So I'm running for my life. I'm on the Chinese soil, mm -hmm. and I fell. Yuna was behind me, and as she was running, she stopped. Oh. And seconds later, the guards were upon us with their guns pointed. Now, where's your guide? He had, he had escaped. Mm -hmm. Now, he did come back, and he was walking very slowly. And according to Yuna, he said to the guards, take me instead. Mm -hmm. But when they tried to grab him, he dashed off. Mm -hmm. So when the guards were upon you, what happened in that moment? We grabbed the soil, the bushes, anything that we could cling on to to stay in China for, for as long as we could. I thought the longer that we're here, perhaps somebody will see us and come help us. But they, they were intent. Um, there was a guard above me. He was particularly fierce. And he, um, as I was down on the soil, he was above me. He, he, he kicked me with his boot. He knocked me in the face and the shoulder. And that just sent a shock through me. Um, and then conti he continued to drag me across the ice. And there was a soldier upon Yuno that was doing the same. So we were slowly being dragged across mm -hmm. the frozen river. And while we were on the ice, um, again, I, I wanted to try to do anything I could to stay as close as I could to China. And, mm -hmm. I, and I actually started yelling, please, please, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we're sorry. And I think that only made him more upset. So he's dragging you across the ice. Okay. He's dragging, and I'm screaming. Were you, were you, well, did, at, I hear, did I read too that he hit you with a gun butt? The at that moment on the ice, yeah. it was about, he was getting closer and closer to North Korea. He raised his rifle, the butt of his rifle. And um, I looked up, I saw the rifle coming down, and I thought this could be the end for me. Mm -hmm. The butt of the rifle struck my head, and I blacked out. So before we go further, uh, North Korea, as you all know, is so closed off from the outside world, it looks like a mysterious and scary place. Here's a quick look at what we do know about North Korea. To keep a stronghold over their rigid communist regime, the North Korean government cuts off their citizens from the rest of the world. There is no internet access and TV airwaves are filled with government propaganda. Simply owning a cell phone can be a crime punishable by death. 
North Korea's hostility toward the United States runs deep. Children are taught America is the enemy, democracy is wrong, and communism is the only way. Kim Jong-il is the supreme ruler. North Korea's faithful citizens refer to him as the dear leader. He is a godlike figure, both worshipped and feared. His picture is posted everywhere, in homes, public buildings, factories, and street corners. As commander of one of the largest armies in the entire world, Kim Jong-il's power goes unchallenged. North Korea only allows images of military parades and lavish celebrations of happy and healthy citizens to be seen by the outside world. This video, smuggled out of the country, tells a vastly different story of poverty, of famine, and rampant disease. Experts say thousands of North Koreans attempt to escape oppression every year. If caught, they face torture or death. So you were there doing a story or trying to do a story on the defectors, the people yes. who were trying to get out. Yes, and this humanitarian crisis that's taking place along the border. These defectors are trying to get out, they're fleeing, and many of them, the majority of the women, are trafficked and they are forced into marriages once they get into China, forced into prostitution. Mm -hmm. And it's a story that neither China nor the North Korean government wants told. Uh -huh. and, and one of the things that complicated things also, Oprah, is that Laura and Yuna, they, they're journalists and they had, uh, they had tape on them. And it, it was clear they were working on a project about defectors. Yes, and so you, you, you write in uh, Somewhere Inside that there, there was a moment where you were left alone and you all destroyed the tapes, which I was like, oh, <laughs> got to, you at least got to destroy the tapes, yeah. and that you ate your notes. You chewed up your nose. It was very early on. It was the first day that we were captured. And for some reason, we were left alone with our belongings for a short period of time. So with guards right outside our door, we thought, we need to get rid of this evidence because we don't want anyone to be endangered. So we ripped up notes from the notebook, ate them, uh, ripped up videotapes, deleted pictures, and did whatever we could in the little time that we had to destroy the evidence in our possession. And the thing that, that I mean, you just saw the, the video of how isolated North Korea is. And ironically, it shares the same peninsula as South Korea, one of the most modern countries in the world. And the reason why North Korea has been able to maintain the stranglehold is it controls everything. And so it desperately does not want any information from the outside world to seep into the country. Into. So did you ever fear that you'd never see her again? Lisa? Well, we always maintained hope, but certainly that fear was always constant with us. I mean, there were so many unprecedented aspects of this. Mm -hmm. No Americans ever, had ever been tried in North Korea's Supreme Court. No American had ever been sentenced to 12 years hard labor. Plus, I don't know if you all recall, but North Korea was firing nuclear weapons at this time. I mean, it was a very, very tense period. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that we, that, that, that we thought could be out of the question. So you started calling everybody you knew? I started calling everyone. And, and, and here's where I knew that I was in. We were in a really, really difficult situation. Oprah actually called me to check in with me. And at, at a certain point, it struck me like, there's nothing that one of the most powerful women in the world can do, not to mention the fact that our government, there's so little our government can do, mm -hmm. because this is a country with which we have 
no diplomatic relationship. You can't just call someone mm -hmm. and say, can we, can we discuss this situation? So tell us about what was going on with you. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I contacted your sister in the very beginning because just to, to, just to offer my support. Yeah. But, and, and, and I would like say prayers for you and think about you and, but no way, in no way could I imagine and I'm sure everybody who's trying to help you can imagine what that actually feels like. And I think you both did a really great job of somewhere inside letting us know for the first time. I went, whoa, my God, I don't even know what would I do in that situation. So immediately, you recognize that they want me to make a confession. Right. Yes. My interrogator, who I call Mr. Yi in the book, I mean, he was grilling me about everything. And, and one of the things that I was most fearful about was that he was questioning me and whether my company was connected to the US government in any way or being bankrolled by the CIA. Uh, the chairman of Current TV is Vice President Al, Al Gore. Gore. That was suspicious from the start. So I had to convince them that we had nothing to do with the government. Not only that, they brought in a whole dossier on Lisa's visit there and essentially said, are you and your sister trying to overthrow the North Korean government. <laughs> so I know our parents were like, we just raised these two girls and what happened? So Lisa was on our show four years ago after she shot a story in North Korea. How did you get in then? Well, I went in with a medical delegation. I was actually there legally. I had a visa in my passport. I just didn't tell the North Korean officials that I was a journalist. I was actually part of this medical team. Mm -hmm. And so they knew she obviously. Yes. In and yes. They knew. They. They. I, they. I had to give them my family history. I said that my sister was named Lisa Ling Song. Mm -hmm. I used her married name. I said that uh, she was. She was a correspondent. I didn't say she worked for you. <laughs> I Keep just my wanted... name out of it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to try to downplay mm -hmm. everything, uh, but they knew and they, they. They found out. So in their mind. I was trying to overthrow the government. And at one point, didn't you tell them I was trying to overthrow the government? Yes, I knew that that was the confession that they wanted to hear. And I was told, if you confess, there may be forgiveness. Um, and if you don't, if you're not frank, if you don't confess, then the worst could happen. And so it was the most difficult decision to have to do that. I didn't know if I was sealing my fate and could be sent out to a firing squad the next mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. But I just had to trust that this was the right thing to do. And when they first put you in the room by yourself and you're separated from Yuna, you broke down and cried. Yes, I mean, we were, we were in a jail cell the first few days um, of our captivity. It was a five by six foot cell and there were a couple of slats on the doors. They weren't, there were no bars, so you couldn't see out. And if they closed those slats, it just went completely dark. And I just, I sat there. Can you there. imagine you're just sitting in the dark by yourself and? and? And I just, there was no way to communicate with the outside world. So then how many, how long after before you were actually sentenced? A couple of months, right? Wasn't it June when you it was? It was a couple of months. I was sentenced in June. Yes. And I was eventually transferred to Pyongyang where the conditions improved. I was no longer in a jail. I was in a regular room. Were you allowed to shower or take care of yourself? 
It was difficult. There were no showers. The power outages happened multiple times a day and water outages. So I developed a system to wash uh, where they would allow me to heat a kettle of water. Uh, it, was a, it was about this big and I would mix it with some cold water mm -hmm. and then I would scrub down and just splash it on me. Mm -hmm. So that's the method that I used to bathe. Okay, you were sentenced to 12 years of hard labor and when you heard that, what did you do? How did you feel? I was petrified. Yeah. I, I had tried to prepare myself for a long sentence. I told myself this could be, it could be long, but once I heard those words, 12 years, come from the judge. I mean, I could barely stand up straight. Mm -hmm. And well, didn't he say no forgiveness and no? No forgiveness, no appeal. And that's what really cut into me. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I spiraled into a deep depression and I refused my meals and I just kind of huddled into a dark corner of the room for, for quite a while. Do you, did you have an idea of what a North Korean labor camp would be like? Well, of course, as working on stories about yeah. North Korea, you hear about these horrific conditions. Yeah, we see some, have we have some pictures there? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing over was that I tried to think that there are so many innocent people that ha are, are enduring this right now. Mm -hmm. that, that, tri that gave me strength. If, if, if these people are undergoing this, mm -hmm. then I can try to muster up the strength to get through it as yeah. well. And in the beginning, you also thought you were pregnant the first few days, right? I did. Um, Ian, my husband, and I had started to try to have a family mm -hmm. right before I left. Then I found out I was not. There was no chance that I was pregnant. And that just crushed me, because mm -hmm. I thought, I will never be able to have a family with my husband again. It was a story that created an international firestorm of controversy. Current TV reporter Laura Ling and her producer Yuna Lee were arrested and held captive in North Korea after illegally crossing the border. For the first time in history, two American citizens were put on trial in one of the most secretive and closed-off countries in the world. After months of tense negotiations, former President Bill Clinton went to North Korea to meet with their elusive leader, Kim Jong-il. We all saw how it ended. After 140 days, Laura and Yuna tearfully reunited with their families. Well, first of all, let's get to when Bill Clinton arrived. You all are walking down a hall, and you had heard that maybe he might be coming. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was unreal, it was surreal. I was walking down a hallway with dozens of North Korean security agents, and I see this bald American with an earpiece, Secret Service agent, <laughs> and I just felt the presence of my country. Mm -hmm. um, and I was ushered, Yuna and I were ushered into a room, and standing before us was President Clinton, and seriously felt like it was this angelic figure, figure that mm -hmm. had, come to, had come to save us. And what did you say to him? I said to him, President Clinton, we've apologized for what we've done. Um, I hope that you can do the same and apologize on our behalf. He said that that's been done. Mm -hmm. I still have a little bit more work to do, but I hope and I believe that you will be on that plane with us tomorrow. Wow. That had to feel like what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, un unreal, unreal. And the only person that could come to our rescue was President Clinton, and we are so, so appreciative 
that he was willing to do so. Wasn't there a moment, though, where your, your interrogator said to you about the, the head of your country coming, and you said to him, if you think Obama is coming, you should just send me to the labor camp now? <laughs> Yeah. Well, at one point, we were talking about who would be an acceptable envoy. Uh -huh. And I was trying to say, well, what about the chairman of my company, Vice President Gore? And they said, well, what if we just cut off the vice? And so I thought, President Obama? And I said, sir, with all due respect, if you think that President Obama is going to come here, you might as well send me to the camp right now. Mm -hmm. He said, well, what about past presidents? That's how. President Clinton's name evolved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the mm -hmm. fact that she was even discussing former presidents of the United States was just it was crazy. Wow. I have to talk about your husband, Ian, because in the book, I think he's got to be the sweetest guy on earth. <laughs> Ian, you've got to be the sweetest guy on earth, because tell us what you did every day at the same time. Every day at uh, 5, 5 o'clock, I would uh, write to Laura. And the reason I'd do it at that time is she was able to, to convince the North Korean government to uh, send us uh, one letter. And she suggested that that could be our time where she would think about me and I would think about her. So I'd write to her and I'd tell her, you know, about what was going on during the day. But you'd not only write to her, you'd write to her in the same spot every day. Same spot every day in our house. And I'd take photographs of me sitting there writing. So there's a <laughs> picture there um, so that she could see that. And so she would know precisely, so she could, you know, visualize precisely where, where I was when I was doing that. Wow. Those letters meant everything to me. They were my oxygen. Mm -hmm. They kept me going. Mm -hmm. And there was a point where you write in the book where you had resigned yourself that you may not see your family again. And you were picturing who did you know who Ian could be with and uh, <laughs> who that could be, right? Yeah, I did. I mean, it was so hard and painful for me to have to do that. But I didn't want my husband to be alone. I wanted somebody to be there to take care of him and he could share a life with. I didn't want him to have to serve a sentence along with me. So during this whole process, um, you know, you talk a little bit in the, uh, at the end of the book and shared with us having to put your family through this, the US government through this. But during that whole time, were you thinking about what, how did this happen to you, that you got yourself in, into this situation? Yeah, of course. I, and I was angry at myself. Mm -hmm. I would go into the bathroom and look at myself in the mirror and think, who are you? And how did this happen? And I mean, I literally would, I hit myself. I slapped myself because I wanted to punish myself mm -hmm. for putting my family through this. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I thought about that every day and mm -hmm. the pain that they must be feeling. That was the hardest thing for me. So, so what do you say to the people who criticize, number one, what you did, stepping over the border, and how you got out? Well, I was on an assignment to tell a story for Current TV about a crisis that is taking place. And I wanted to raise awareness about the horrific conditions in North Korea and what these desperate people are fleeing. And that. That story was never able to be told. Um, I hope that this book can shine a light on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in your family, what was going on? Were you holding it together? Um, we were devastated. And because our family had gone public, and, and really I had, at a certain point, started to do a lot of interviews, everybody became aware of the situation. And not a single day would go by. Even today, every time I, I leave my house, people come up to me. And at the time, 
people would come up and say, how's your sister doing? How's your sister doing? And the hardest thing for me to, was to say, I don't know. I don't know how my sister is doing. And so we just, I just stayed home most of the time. But our parents were an absolute wreck. I mean, my mom just like stopped showering and Ian had to tell her to take a bath and change her clothes one day. And, and our father, who's usually a very um, kind of funny guy, cracking jokes all the time. I mean, the hardest thing is to hear your father cry. I mean, that is just a, just relentlessly crying is, 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 is really a painful thing. So how is Yuna doing? And the question I had when I saw that you, the two of you had written the book, why didn't you and Yuna write a book? Yuna is doing well. We, we talk frequently. Um, she's spending a lot of time with her husband, Michael, and their mm -hmm. adorable daughter. Mm -hmm. And um, Yuna and I spent a total of six days together in captivity. And um, I will forever regard Yuna as a, a member of our family. Um, but Yuna has a different story to tell. And she, in fact, is writing about her experience. Mm -hmm. Are you still in communication? We are. We, mm -hmm. talk, we talk frequently. I just saw her a few days ago, in fact. Mm -hmm. So we were saying earlier that uh, there was a in the very early days when you were captured, you were wondering if you were pregnant at the time. You were not pregnant, but now you are. <laughs> <laughs> now I am. I mean, after you separated. <laughs> you separated from your husband for five months and you get home, what can I say? <laughs> what can I say? Well, congratulations. Thank congratulations. You so much. Lisa and Laura's Lane's book is called Somewhere Inside. Before the earthquake in January, there were about 380,000 orphans in Haiti. Today, experts estimate there are more than one million. The conditions are unimaginable. There is little food and water, widespread disease, and the threat of vulnerable children being sold into slavery. Baptist aid workers from Idaho made headlines when they were arrested for trying to take 33 children out of Haiti without permission. All of this has sparked heated debate about what is best for the orphan children of Haiti. Well, looking at those little faces, some of you may feel like running down to Haiti to save a child, thinking you could bring them back to the USA for a better life. But is that the answer? Lisa Ling spent time with a family who did indeed adopt a seven-year-old girl from Haiti. She witnessed the culture shock for everybody involved. This was the scene at the airport when little Claire landed in California to join her new family. Just 11 weeks ago, Claire was living in a crowded orphanage, sharing a twin bed with four other girls. Her mother gave her up when she was a baby. This is where Claire lives now a 4,000-square-foot home in a gated community. There's a manicured yard to run around in, <laughs> even a private lake. Inside, they showed me their home movie theater with a fully stocked candy counter. Is that your seat right there? Yeah. Claire gave me a tour of her room. She has a queen-size bed all to herself, plenty of toys, and a closet full of clothes. You'd think she landed in a little girl's dream world. In Haiti, Claire would get just one meal a day, a mound of rice and beans. Claire, what's your favorite food here? Pancake and ketchup. <laughs> pancake and ketchup? Uh, together. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. put ketchup on your pancake? That's interesting. <laughs> 
Debbie soon realized the abundance of food in their home would be a big change for Claire. Her stomach is hugely extended and she ends up throwing up if she eats too much. Does she sort so. of feel like every meal is her last? Or yes. in the beginning at in least? In the beginning she did. Yeah, absolutely. And she, until she knew that she was gonna get another meal, every meal time was awful with her. It was this constant battle of how much food she mm -hmm. could eat. Small bites, small bites. Has she had any adjustment issues since she's been here? Um, there's been a lot of adjustment at school. Um, she's very aggressive. And um, in Haiti, um, they grow up learning to shove, push, kick, slap, whatever they need to do to get what they want when they, you know, and it's survival. It's what we call the coping skills of living in Haiti. And so obviously that behavior does not work here. Each week, the family calls Claire's former orphanage. Now we're calling Mama Lady's phone number, okay? They want to keep their daughter connected. I can't be going in. But the calls can be hard on Claire. Baby. Mama Lady scared you? Look at Mommy. Why did that scare you, honey? I know, you know, the first week, I remember praying with her at, at night, and she just started breaking down and crying, you know, as she was praying for all the kids over there. Um, so I think she misses him. Hello? Hello? <laughs> Hello? Hello? Does she ever think that she might have to go back to Haiti? She was worried about that at first. And my daughter Ashley, who's in Haiti right now, um, told Claire that she was leaving. And she asked Claire if she wanted to go with her. And she says, oh, no, no, Claire, no Haiti. Help me, Daddy. I'm helping you. You and your husband were... Preparing for the empty nest, and now you not only have a seven-year-old, but yeah. a, a, a Haitian child who doesn't speak a lot of English. Yes, went through a devastating earthquake. Right. Yeah. It's so. It's you know. It's a an even more complicated change of life in that respect. You know, um, but that's okay. You know, and I mean. I'm, would, I would be lying to say it hasn't been difficult, because it has. But the rewards have been far greater. Debbie and Scott say that they're telling their story because they want people to go into an adoption like this with their eyes wide open. Here's how they respond to people who criticize their decision. There are people who are watching this who are saying, oh, here we go again, the, the white saviors of this black child. Mm -hmm. And they may think, who do they think they are taking this kid out of there, out of this culture? How do you respond to that? You know what? To me, it's, color doesn't matter. Um, the ethnic background, and if there's children suffering, just because we're white doesn't mean we should just sit around and not do anything. And why didn't you adopt from America? Well, I, th I think the reason is, is that we fell in love with Claire on a missions trip. So it didn't really matter to us where she happens to be black, she happens to be from Haiti. We're just doing what we know is the right thing to do. Claire is actually not an orphan. She, her both parents are alive. Is it hard to take her away from her biological parents? Not, not at all. I, I, you have to understand, she was given up at a real early age, one year old, uh, simply because the family could not provide for her. She, she was malnourished. And so taking her out of that environment, even though that she had biological parents, was the best thing for her. Do you have any regrets? None. None. Not at all.
What was it like the first time she called you daddy? It just warmed my heart, it really did. No. It just kind of solidified that we were doing oh, the right daddy, thing. And it's just amazing to see her transformation. It's just been wonderful, very rewarding for us. Hard to go through, very difficult. That would have been the most challenging parts of it. To understand how, what, what she's going through in her mind, um, I don't think we'll ever fully know. Can you tell me who these people are? Daddy. So that's your daddy? Yeah. Where's your mommy? And these are your brothers and sisters? Yeah. Why is it important for you to keep this picture here? We just want to make sure that she constantly remembers her family. That's her heritage right there. Just have them very present in her life as best we can. Debbie and Scott are joining us from their home in California. Hi, guys. Hi, good morning. Hi, I'm here with Lisa. So you all had been working on this, obviously, since it took you more than three years, long before uh, the earthquake. Why did you want to adopt from Haiti? Well, we really weren't looking to adopt. We went on a missions trip with my brother and his family to Haiti, and Claire was the first little Haitian girl that we saw. And our hearts just connected. So where was she? She was there when the earthquake hit. Oh, yes, she was. And did you know how, how long before you knew that she was actually OK? It was about a week. Yeah, it took us about a week to get word. Was it easier then to get her out through the adoption process after the earthquake? Yeah, it actually, it actually sped things up. Uh, we probably still wouldn't have her if the earthquake hadn't have hit, but we were able to get her out through a humanitarian aid visa. And so now, Lisa, you were saying that they're not allowing any more adoptions unless those adoptions had been processed. Had been ongoing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they've stopped adoptions. People should know that if they really, really want to help the children of Haiti, help it as a country build infrastructure and social services. And it's important to note, Debbie and Scott had been trying to adopt Claire for years, but after the earthquake hit, there was just a loss of control. And it is an instinct, I think, when you see these children who are so desperate. Oh, absolutely. You want, to, you want to bring them home. But it's, it's the reason why I built a school, because when I first started going to Africa, Stedman was saying, all right, how many children are you bringing home? <laughs> and you have to, you literally, I have had to stop myself. But I wanted to just say to the two of you, I applaud you, and I really hope that God will continue to bless you both, because this is not an easy thing to do. And over the years, I have interviewed families who were gay in adopting children, families who were a different race in adopting children, and the common thread with all the children is that they just want to be loved. Children don't care what, what your sexual preference is. Children don't care what color you are. Children, children just respond to love. Have you found that with Claire? Oh, yeah, absolutely. She's flourishing under that constant love and, and nurturing that she's getting here. And she's, I've never seen her happier. Um, it's just really been a beautiful thing. But have, have you all experienced racism? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. Um, uh, just a couple weeks after we got Claire, I took her to the grocery store with me. And um, I was pushing her along, and I saw this gentleman standing by his cart staring at her and he was just glaring and it 
I was describing it to Lisa. It was, it was an evil, evil look in his eye. And he wasn't looking at us. He was looking at her. And um, it made me so angry and nauseous. And I was so thankful that Claire was completely oblivious to it. But he looked as if I allowed her to get close enough to him that he would spit on her. Tell me this. What are you then, you know, right now, she may not know it or notice it, but at some point she will, and at some point yeah. somebody's going to say something or do something. Yeah. And what are you all going to tell her or teach her about it? Our goal is to um, teach her, as well as we've taught all of our children, just to love unconditionally. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't change who you are. Your skin color is just your skin color. Have you so all had the talk about it in your family, though, because she is a Haitian child? Yeah, we have talked about it with our, our kids. And um, we're all on the same page of how we want to raise her. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we, it's really important to us that Claire knows that she's wonderful and special, just like the rest of us. She's just like us. But also <laughs> to have a connection to her, her biological family. You said that's her heritage. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. They said as soon as Claire's adoption goes through, they want to take her back to Haiti so that she maintains that connection to, their, to her culture. But Claire had just said, no Haiti, no Haiti. No Claire, no Haiti. Yeah, she doesn't. Claire goes, no Claire, no Haiti. She wants to go if she can come back. Because Claire goes, I like pancakes with ketchup. <laughs> well, I applaud you both. And I would yeah. like to say this, Debbie. It's a wonderful thing. We're all alike in our hearts. We're all alike in so many other ways. But we're not all alike with our hair. So to see you, <laughs> see you parting her hair and braiding that little hair, congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, Debbie and Scott. Thank you, Laura. Thank you very much. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah show, The Podcast. And I thank you for listening. <laughs>